purity culture depicted the pursuit of purity as um, something that would gain you personal rewards. Once you um, succeeded and got to the altar, then you, you could use your spouse as like an outlet, which is another depersonalizing um, form of rhetoric. But I think what scripture teaches is that we pursue purity for the glory of God and love for our brothers and sisters. The goal of purity needs to become much more selfless than it was taught in purity culture. Hey guys, it's Melissa Moore. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of Faith, Hope, Love, where we grow together in our faith, increase in hope, and learn how to better love God and love other people. On today's episode, we are in the middle of our momentum series. So if you haven't, um, go back and watch, especially the first episode of the series, where we kind of break down the biblical teaching associated with Hebrews 12 verses one through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So on today's show, we have a special guest. Her name is Rachel Joy Welcher, and she is the author of Talking Back to Purity Culture. We are called to purity, but um, sometimes people have almost made it into this like separate religion and it's kind of become unbiblical. So how do we move forward in um, our relationship with God and in serving and honoring him with our bodies in a way that is biblical and good? And so uh, Rachel, thanks for joining me on today's show. If you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. I'm honored to be here. Um, I am an author, the author of um, Talking Back and also a couple books of poetry. Um, and then I work as an editor for Fathom and just do some freelance work for different publishers. So author and editor is what I mainly do, but I'm also a pastor's wife um, and I lead worship at our church. And so it's really neat to get to do ministry side by side with my husband. We really love that opportunity. Um, and I am a graduate of St. Andrews in Scotland, the University of St. Andrews. I got to get my master's there when I was 30. And um, kind of a little bit later in life and just after having gone through some things, I decided to go back to school. And that's really where I started my research um, surrounding purity culture and the books I grew up with. I know we're kind of similar in age, so we kind of grew up with some of the same books and the, the same rhetoric and the way of explaining how to pursue purity. And again, sometimes those things were healthy, sometimes they were not. And so um, you really, you cover so, so much in the books. So I really want to just jump in. Um, but before we really start, um, I would love if you would share, you know, what exactly, what does purity culture mean? And, you know, what inspired you to really write this book? Right. Well, so purity culture, I mean, it can be defined different ways depending on um, the generation you're talking about. But what I'm writing about is the purity culture that sort of arose coming out of the 70s and 80s um, in response to uh, people being scared about STDs and teen pregnancy and just this this cumulative response of what are we going to do about these issues? And the response was to kind of create a, a Christian subculture so that uh, was defined by, you know, pledges, rings, conferences, books. And the whole idea was how do we get teenagers to save sex for marriage, which is a very good thing. Biblically speaking, sex belongs in marriage. But what happened, um, and we can talk about it more, but one of the things that happened was that it, um, veered from scripture in many ways in terms of how they motivated teenagers and some of the messages and things they promised. So I think it started out um, based on fear, but then also started out based on scripture. 
and definitely became its own kind of strange Christian subculture that definitely needs to be deconstructed. I'm not the only one writing about this, but I did discover in my research that most of the people deconstructing purity culture were also um, leaving the faith. Or if not leaving the faith, they were deconstructing purity culture to the point that they were actually throwing out God's sexual ethic. And so I wanted to approach the topic um, by saying, how can we compare purity culture teachings to scripture so that we can be more biblical, not less? And that was really my goal was to present a view where we, we do talk about the harmful teachings, but we return to the truths of scripture. And I think that's something that's really important to kind of differentiate that again, there are some really amazing parts of purity culture. And I think we need to, you know, hold on to obviously the scripture based portions of that. Um, you know, but with that, you know, obviously it does kind of depart to some extent from the Bible and, you know, I kind of would love to hear from you. Where do you see that? Like, where do you see that the, you know, it's kind of gotten things right aligning with the Bible as well as where has it kind of departed from what God's word says about purity? Right. Well, I mean, growing up in purity culture and reading all the books, um, I definitely benefited from the message that sex is sacred and has a specific place. And so um, I took sex very seriously. And I think that's a good thing. I think the Bible teaches us that. Um, so that was a benefit. I think one of the difficult things for me is that I internalized this message that sex was not only important, but that it was sort of a reward for my good behavior. And that really um, created kind of a twisted view about sex, um, even sex and marriage for me. Um, virginity was depicted not just as um, sort of a, a time in life before, before marriage, but it was depicted as this idol, that if you lose your virginity, you are no longer fully whole as a person. And I think that was really damaging for my friends who'd experienced sexual abuse. Um, because they'd had their virginity stolen from them. And even my friends who had willingly entered, um, you know, engaged in sexual activity, this idea that they were no longer worthy to be a spouse or that they had less to offer their future spouse was really damaging. And I remember some of the young girls um, that I knew growing up, once they heard that, they just decided, well, since I've done it once, I might as well keep doing it. So it actually didn't encourage, those messages didn't encourage chastity. Um, once you fail, um, it sort of seemed like it was all over. So that was definitely one message that was problematic. Um, but I think the, the worst aspects of purity culture were the way it morphed into a prosperity gospel. And it's good to pursue purity um, in all areas of our life. But the idea that if we pursue purity successfully, we are guaranteed marriage or guaranteed great sex and marriage and guaranteed babies. Um, those messages subtly seeped into the literature and the conferences, maybe without the authors even realizing it. Um, but those promises, we clung to them. And now there's a generation of you know people in their 30s and 40s who are dealing with divorce. They're dealing with infertility. They're dealing with same-sex attraction. They're dealing with prolonged singleness, and they are wondering, wait a second, where are the rewards that I was promised for staying pure? And I think, you know, even especially with people that are walking through those circumstances, a lot of that, I mean, all of this really resonates with me, but, you know, what does purity culture have for them now? You know, if, again, if I know you've shared in your book a little bit about your experience post, you know, having a marriage and then going into singleness again before getting remarried, like how... You know, how do you grapple with that when you're you're someone that's kind of excluded by the, the teachings of purity culture? 
Right. Well, I think we focused so much on adolescents as though adolescents are the only ones that need to be pure. Um, but I remember David Pallison wrote a book called Making All Things New. Um, and he talked about the fact that purity is a lifelong calling. And I really love the way he talked about it. He said, you know, it's it's not just for the teenager, it's for the widow, it's for the married, it's for anyone. Um, and sexual self-control is a lifelong calling. And so I think it would have benefited us more if purity had been depicted as something that doesn't have an end goal of marriage. Because as we know, those of us who are married, um, purity still matters in marriage, right? Just because someone is um, having sex with their spouse doesn't mean that they won't struggle with sexual temptation. Um, and so I think that it did us a disservice to hyper-focus on adolescence as the only season where purity matters. Um, so coming out of divorce, you know, the idea that, okay, I'm not a virgin anymore, so I don't have my virginity to offer to the next spouse. So what's my, you know, what's the, any, what's the draw? Um, and um, do I have the same standard? Do I need to hold myself to the same standard I did when I was a teenager? Well, the answer I returned to was yes, but I found that in scripture and I, I didn't find it from purity culture. I found it in scripture um, and it came through suffering, not reward. Uh, and I think that's something else that was really neglected in purity culture is the fact that you can do everything right. You can follow God and you still might experience childlessness, um, a difficult sex life and marriage, or um, you might experience same sex attraction and really struggle to not be able to kind of, um, to, or to feel like everyone is pairing up and that you are called celibacy. And, you know, these are, that is true suffering. And these were not topics that were addressed in purity culture. And so I think there were large groups of people who were neglected by the rhetoric. Man, again, so much of that really speaks to, to my heart and, you know, my personal experience. And I'm, I know for many that are watching this, their experience with this as well. And I love that you really come back this idea that we still need to be pursuing purity. It just looks different for each of these groups, you know, um, and even within marriage too, you know, both of us are now married, but like for us to still be pursuing purity in a world that is, you know, has been forever sex saturated and, you know, with pornography being so rampant and easy to access. I mean, there's, there's, there's more need for this book than ever, I think. So, um, with that, I, I want to really dive into some of the messages that purity culture kind of gave to men and women. I feel like it's important to have some of these conversations in different, you know, groups, but there's, you talk in the book about this idea that men are referred to as like these sex machines and almost like unable to control lust and women are, um, kind of the ones that are called to hold the line. And they also tend to be seen as, um, stumbling blocks for men. So I would love to kind of, if you could just really elaborate on what that looks like and, you know, how do we speak to men and women in a way that's actually beneficial? Oh man. Yeah. So I, I do, I take a chapter, um, for each, uh, I talk about what men were taught and what women were taught. And it was really interesting and sometimes horrifying to reread these books. And, and I hadn't read the ones for men because, you know, as a teenage girl, I read all the ones written for women. But when I was doing my research, I read the most popular books for uh, written for women and men during that era. And I was surprised by how, um, how much of the books for men were about lust, as opposed to the books for women. Women were talked to about guarding their hearts and bodies for the most part. Um, occasionally talking, talk to about keeping our minds pure. Um, but the idea was almost that women are sexless, that we don't have sexual desire, which is a whole nother conversation and problem. 
Um, but one of the reasons that I think women were talked to that way is so that we were, um, we were convinced that because we had more sexual self-control that we could prevent sexual sin or sexual assault. And so when women are set up as sort of the guardians of purity, what happens is that men then are let off the hook, which is not good for them because the Bible doesn't do that. And it's not good for women because women only have so much control. Um, and the only, and, I, and when I say that, what I mean is we only have so much, uh, I guess, sexual control, but um, control over the situation. So um, I think men and women both have the ability to um, have sexual self-control through the Holy Spirit. But women cannot always prevent um, situations from happening. And, and purity culture rhetoric really does talk, speak in a way that would blame women for their own sexual assault. Um, but going back to men, so men are talked to often about controlling their thought life and their actions and their sexual actions. But the way that they are told to do that is not by looking at women as sisters in all purity, which is what scripture says, right? Um, they are told to avoid women, um, to bounce their eyes off women, um, to, um, essentially what I would boil down the advice to is depersonalize women so that you don't lust after them. The problem with that is when you depersonalize anyone, you're more likely to sin against them. And so while I can understand that if someone is really struggling with self-control, that they might need to avoid whatever the thing is that they're um, tempted by for a time, I can understand a place for that. But ultimately, men and women need to learn to view each other rightly. Um, I think that the main goal <laughs> should be that we view each other as brothers and sisters in all purity, as scripture tells us to do. So the fact that so many of these books for men gave advice that depersonalizes women was very um, disappointing and scary. And then when you switch back to the books written for women, um, I think that they were taught to depersonalize themselves as well. Um, often talked about as though their bodies rather than being created good by God, were, um, are basically just these stum walking stumbling blocks and that our goal is to just make sure we cover up. And while there's a place for discussions of modesty, for sure, um, the hyperfixation on female modesty has made a lot of women feel guilty just for having bodies. So sorry, that's a lot. I mean, we could say so much more, but those are just a few things um, that men and women were taught that I think um, are very damaging. I, I totally agree. And I like what you've really touched on with this almost like objective objectification of women that, you know, they're the ones that it's it's their fault. You know, if something does happen to them, you know, again, how dare you have a body? Um, even if you are carefully covering it, there's so many instances where women, you know, the victim shaming, things like that, victim blaming. Um, but yeah, if men and women are both almost being taught that women are these objects, um, whether they're objects to be avoided or objects to cover and hide, um, it's not how we were created. You know, we were created by God, um, you know, in his image as, as, you know, as image bearers, we are um, supposed to be treated as such. And I think what you've kind of mentioned in the book is if we can help men and women to kind of change our perspective instead of saying, these are people to avoid um, the opposite gender, or if you're same-sex attracted, avoid others of the same gender, um, and I agree. I love that you mentioned maybe for a time until we can kind of separate that out a little bit. But I, I think that if we if we really are almost objectifying the opposite gender or the person you're attracted to, you 
you lose out. I mean, the church was supposed to be lived as a community of believers together with the same goal, pushing forward towards Jesus. And if we're so afraid of each other and are objectifying each other, then we can't do that. And you know, again, obviously we still need to live with purity, especially, you know, you know, even in marriage, you know, living in other relationships with other people of the opposite gender in purity. But again, it's if we're objectifying each other, we really aren't able to um, have the fullness of, of what God had you know, designed us for. Absolutely. And, and maybe it's about shifting the focus of purity to what will get out of it to how purity can serve others. You know, so purity culture depicted the pursuit of purity as um, something that would gain you personal rewards. Once you um, succeeded and got to the altar, then you, you could use your spouse as like an outlet, which is another depersonalizing um, form of rhetoric. But I think what scripture teaches is that we pursue purity for the glory of God and love for our brothers and sisters. So if the more we look at one another as a family, like you said, we need each other. Um, it is not good for man to be alone is not just about marriage. It's about men and women in the church. And so um, I think that the goal of purity needs to become much more selfless than it was taught in purity culture. The thing that's hard about this too is, you know, we all have needs that need to be met. And um, if we're not seeking God to meet those needs, we're going to look elsewhere. And so I think to be able, you know, again, so much of purity culture, I think tells people just stop having needs um, and it's not possible to do that. And so I, I love, again, in your book that you kind of focus less on um, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and more on here's how we view one another in light of how we were created by God so that we can treat each other as brothers and sisters and, and live in, in wholeness um, to be able to, again, appreciate the bodies that we've been given um, and you know who we have been created to be by God. I know, I, I love it. I, I feel like your book really, instead of saying all the no's of what you're not supposed to do, I feel like you really show how we can do this in a way that's healthy. Right, oh, praise God, that was my goal. And, you know, I worked with um, teenagers for about a decade as a high school English teacher and just um, hearing some of their burdens and stories and even the way that um, as a Christian school, we talked about modesty. It really put a burden on my heart to think through how we can talk about biblical sexual purity in ways that are life-giving and truthful. And that that will involve talking about suffering. Like you said, we have um, sexual desires that are not always met. And that's, that's part of... Um, that's part of our whole life, not just a, a season. And so what do we do with those longings? We can either submit them to Christ um, sort of unwillingly and say, well, what are you going to give me for it? Or we can give in. But I think the third option is to say um, self-denial for the glory of Christ is worth it, even if we don't reap the benefits in this lifetime. That is so hard. It's, it's a very difficult message for teenagers, which is, I think, why we just kind of chucked it and, and then decided to create these sexy carrots instead. But the truth of the Christian life is that self-denial does hurt and that Jesus actually knows what that feels like. We, we are not alone in the suffering of self-denial. He walked in the same flesh that we wear. Um, he experienced the same temptations without sin. And so he is a faithful um, sympathetic high priest. And I wish that that's what we talked about more. Um, so that teenagers who are struggling, for instance, would know that they weren't alone. Um, and that there's a third option between just giving in or, you know, not giving in begrudgingly 
for rewards, but the, the option of suffering for the sake of Christ. I love that. And, you know, this whole series we've kind of talked about in Hebrews 12, this idea of, you know, we put our eyes on Jesus and we look at the way that he showed endurance and um, was joyful in his endurance. You know, how do we, you know, mirror that almost? And, you know, it's like this, you know, put your eyes on him so that you don't lose hope. You don't give up. So I, again, I would kind of love to hear, I know, like you've shared in your book, a little bit of your personal experience with this, you know, again, having been married and um, then, you know, going through a period of singleness and then, you know, getting remarried. Maybe if you wouldn't mind speaking to people that are more in that 30s generation and maybe a little older that are experiencing singleness that are in these seasons where they're, they're not in these marriages that they were promised, you know, what would you say to them to give them kind of hope and encouragement? I think for older singles, um, there's a lot of disappointment and disenchantment involved. When you're young, um, the potential of what might happen um, is there. When you're older, um, I've heard that dating is much harder. Um, I think that we feel a little bit cheated by God, um, that you know something should have happened by now, or the thing that we were promised broke. So like in my situation, I did get married in my 20s, but by the time I was 30, I was divorced. Um, and so I think we're in a different situation than say when you're 15 and um, sort of excited about life. You're in your 30s or 40s and you are feeling as though um, the options, um, the potential of marriage is growing slimmer. Um, and so then you're dealing with the fact that maybe singleness is a lifelong um, calling for you. And for some, singleness and celibacy is, is a calling that they are very sure of and that they're content with. But we need to acknowledge that there are so many singles who do not want to be single. And so what do we do as a church to help them? I don't think we can promise them marriage. That, that's what I want to do. So when I talk to a single friend, I want to say, I know God has someone for you. What I can say is, I know you'd make an amazing spouse, but I cannot promise them something that God hasn't promised them. Um, so I think we need to make sure that we're not talking about marriage as though it's something we earn because we're so great, uh, because we know a lot of singles who would make incredible spouses and that's not why they're single. Um, we don't know. We don't know why God has the plans he has, but we know that God never leaves our side, whether we're single, married, um, suffering or joyful. And so I think ways we can encourage our single friends. Here's a practical way on Twitter. Um, people were asking me to share my baby registry because I'm about to have a little girl in a few months. And um, as I was thinking about it, I realized that singles don't get to do a wedding registry or a baby registry. And um, how kind of sad that is that they don't get to ha have someone else experience uh, or celebrate with them their life, right? Uh, a new set of dishes or whatever it is they need. And so I suggested that we start a hashtag um, where singles could post their wish lists and we could celebrate them in their singleness. Just practical things like that, where we acknowledge that maybe marriage is not a promise, but it doesn't mean that you aren't part of a family. It doesn't mean that you aren't loved. And we acknowledge that some singles are genuinely suffering. Like not all singles are content with their singleness and, and to come alongside them in that pain. Again, I feel like there's so, so much in the book that Again, you cover so, so many different topics, but if you had like one thing that you would really want men and women to kind of take away from your book, uh, what would that be? Um, I think that we need each other. And so in our struggle to fight sexual sin, our goal should be that we would ultimately view one another the way God sees us. It might take time, um, 
temptation might be fierce, but ultimately to, to pray that we could view each other as brothers and sisters, as image bearers, as co-heirs. Um, I think that that would be my prayer for those who read the book. Um, even as they're maybe getting into groups and discussing these questions um, and chapters together, that they would grow in their appreciation for one another. The fact that we all struggle in different ways, but that we are all created as sexual beings. It manifests itself differently, but it's a common, it's common to man. It's common to woman. And as I said earlier, and as Hebrews, the book you've been studying, uh, points out that Jesus gets it. You know, we are not, God is not removed from this situation. He knows intimately through Christ what it means to live in this flesh. Um, and Hebrews promises that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so while things in our life change and can be disappointing, Jesus doesn't change. And again, I love, you had said in the past part of this episode that, you know, Jesus is our high priest, that he, you know, he stands in the middle between us and God and, and advocates for us and, and, he gets it. Um, I know one of the big things I took away from your book was just how um, deeply loved I am by God, even despite my past struggles and um, you know, the things I've done, the things that were done to me, and, and being able to drop that shame um, and be able to just sit in God's presence and understand and like, like getting chills here, like just basking in like how deeply loved we are by God um, in whatever stage we are in. Um, and that God loves us despite our brokenness and our flaws, but he doesn't want to leave us that way. You know, that he He desires purity from us because it is for our best and it is honoring and glorifying to him too. Um, but I think, I hope people listening to this and, you know, that pick up your book will walk away with that idea that they are, they are so loved by God. Um, and again, I really do feel like that permeates your book. So I just, again, I appreciate you writing it and taking the time to put it out into the world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the images that we received from purity culture of the bruised rose, um, the, you know, broken car, spit in water, those are not the images that we see in scripture. We are, as you said, loved by God. We are whole in Christ. No matter what has happened to you, what's been done to you or what you have done in the flesh, um, forgiveness is available in Christ. And all we have to do is receive it. And again, you, you've mentioned all those different uh, examples of how that, you know, purity has been portrayed in, you know, different, you know, purity ring ceremonies and, uh, you know, youth groups across the nation um, and worldwide. Um, but being able to, instead of, yeah, look at ourselves as this flawed object, whether you're a man or a woman, but rather just to see ourselves as being wholly loved by God and, um, again, created in his image and, you know, yeah, that his grace covers all of it. Um, I, again, I, I've just so loved our time together. If you, if you wouldn't mind just kind of for a last thing, maybe just kind of share with someone that's maybe been hurt by purity culture that is kind of doing this faith deconstruction and is not wanting to deconstruct or reconstruct their faith. Um, how would you speak to them in a way that maybe they still want to live a life of biblical purity, but they've been so hurt by this? I think I would just tell them that there is a place in scripture we see it in the Psalms and Lamentations um, for lament, and that you are allowed to experience that hurt, to cry out to God and to tell him how the church has hurt you or purity culture or other Christians, and that um, you don't have to rush through that process because we see in scripture that there's a place for us to express our pain. 
but that ultimately I would hope and pray for them that they would see Jesus for who he is and not for who he's been betrayed to be wrongly, but that he is a, a loving and forgiving savior um, who has his arms open wide. Awesome. Well, Rachel, I just so appreciate your time today, just sharing from your heart and from your book, uh, what God says about purity culture and, and, and how he really sees us and how much he loves us. So um, if you have not yet, I encourage you pick up a copy of her book. Um, Rachel, if you wouldn't mind also sharing um, how people can follow you as well. Um, I think you're on social media and you have a website. Yes. So you can find my book anywhere books are sold. And I'm on Twitter at Rachel J. Welcher. And I tweet often about these topics. So I'd love for you to follow me and I'd love to follow you back. I don't always remember to, but, you know, shoot me a message if you want me to. And I um, would love to talk more about these things. Well, again, thank you so much just for joining me on the show. And for anyone listening, thank you for joining and, and listening in. I hope that this time has been encouraging to you. Um, maybe it's given you opportunity just to kind of process through some of uh, maybe your childhood baggage and given you an opportunity really just to uh, find hope and again knowing that you are so deeply loved by God and he he has an amazing plan for your life He knows what it is um, But yes, please go take a moment pick up a copy of her book listen to the audiobook I found that to be super helpful as well um, And just take some time to process through you know who God says that you are how much he loves you and um, He's gonna walk with you through this process. So um, Have a great week. and I'll see you all next week